0: from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch, I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform and today I'm in conversation with Camino Motera-Martinez, who is a research fellow for the CER in Brussels and she works on justice and home affairs there. Hi, Camino.
1: Hi, good morning, Sophia.
0: Right, so we're here to talk about your your magnum opus, your big policy brief on uh, justice and home affairs and what Brexit will mean for cooperation between the UK and Europe in this area of police cooperation and law enforcement. I've got a few questions for you. Let's try to make this snappy and let's try to explain what you wrote in your piece. So. My first question would be, what are the opening positions of the UK and the EU going into negotiations? What were their objectives on both sides? So, for for all of you who are scared
1: about the words Justice and Home Affairs, just to make it easier, we're talking about uh, police cooperation, law enforcement, criminal law and all these sort of things which are kind of important for Brexit negotiations. Obviously, both parties want to have a deal that allows European citizens to be safe and that allows a degree of cooperation that is optimal uh, to achieve that objective. Now, what happens is that, obviously, the two parties had different ways of looking at it, the UK wants to have what they call a bespoke agreement, so it's not only about trade, but it's also about uh, judicial cooperation and police cooperation and all these sort of things, but they remain quite vague on what they mean by we want to have a bespoke agreement, an off-the-shelf deal, whereas the European Union keeps on insisting that whatever that means, it is not uh, an offer. So I think, as we were saying before, that both are opening positions in a negotiation They are likely to evolve. But at the moment, we're a bit stuck because both parties start from a very, very different uh, position to try to arrive at what I hope is the same objective, which is having a, a good deal that ensures keeping everybody
0: safe. Okay, great. So let's look at how the EU works with other third countries in this area of cooperation. Are there any examples that the UK could follow?
1: Yes. So let's try to make this simple again. Uh, So basically, in this area, we need to make a difference in between Schengen countries and non-Schengen countries. So as you might know, the Schengen area, which is a passport-free area within the European Union, is a bit like the Eurozone. So it's basically uh, not all member states are part of it. But unlike the Eurozone, we've got Third countries like Norway and Switzerland who are not part of the European Union but they are part of Schengen. And because a lot of the cooperation on just affairs touches upon the Schengen area, we need to distinguish in between the way the European Union works with Schengen countries, like Norway and Switzerland, and the way the European Union works with non-Schengen, non-European Union countries, like the US and Canada, for example. And they basically have different sort of agreements, Uh, Schengen members have more rights but in turn have also more obligations whereas non-Schengen members have a looser cooperation on security and police cooperation uh, but they also have fewer obligations. For example, they do not have to um, stay within the direct oversight of the European Court of Justice. They are not obviously uh, forced to have an open border policy with the European Union as for example Schengen countries do.
0: This was great. This is very, very well explained, Camino. I mean, I'm sure this is not the first time you're doing it. In your research, you've identified three main priority areas in the negotiations. So you talk about extradition agreements, about access to law enforcement databases, and about partnerships with EU agencies like, for example, Europol. All of these are things that the UK would want to negotiate after Brexit. Let's go in reverse order. Will the UK be able to work with Europol?
1: I should hope so and i think that everybody does because if you look at any agreements that europol which is by the way at the european union's police agency has with third countries and here we're talking about Uh, Schengen countries like Norway and Switzerland, as I was saying before, and non-Schengen countries like the US, for example. If you look at those agreements, they are fairly comprehensive. So they allow countries to send what we call liaison officers, so basically to post people from their agencies or ministries to Europol. And they also allow a certain degree of information sharing. The problem here is that most countries which are associated with Europol, so which have a partnership with Europol, cannot access Europol's information system directly for obvious reasons. And here I think it's interesting to look at the example of Denmark. Now you might be wondering why are you talking about Denmark? Denmark is a European Union country. They surely have a very close uh, role in in Europol. But actually Denmark and this is interesting for the UK had a referendum uh, to leave Europol and other uh, measures of justice. home affairs in 2015 in which they voted to leave. And now the Danish government has to negotiate access to JHA uh, measures uh, one by one, and this might sound familiar for our British friends, and one of the things that happened was that they try to negotiate access to the Europol information system, so they tried to negotiate a very close agreement with Europol and they failed. So the Danish police, for example, if they want to interrogate Europol's databases uh, to catch, I don't know, say a terrorist, they cannot do it directly like any other uh, police service in the European Union would, but they had to ask their people there to do it for them. And this might seem like a technicality but it actually means that it takes more time to look at the database as as if you were inside. So the UK will be able to have a very close relationship with Europol uh, an agency by the way that has done much to shape in the past decade or so, uh, but it will not have the same relationship that it had when it was inside and, and particularly it will not have this direct access to the Europol information system, which I think is crucial for um, a smooth law enforcement
0: cooperation. Okay, so the bad news is that this is the easy one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to extradition then. Can you just quickly explain to JLJ beginners why a country needs extradition agreements and then what the options are for the UK after Brexit?
1: Yeah, so last time we talked, you recall, we were thinking about robbing a bank. And yes. I gave you some examples on how to do that.
0: Listeners can go back to the episode that we recorded with Camino a few weeks ago.
1: Yes, so, so I gave you some examples on how to do that so that, that we, would, we would not be caught. And basically, imagine that we, we're still having this idea of robbing a bank. And we do it here in Brussels because you're quite often over in brussels then obviously uh we are not uh, belgian citizens and we go back to spain so i've got a nice house there we go there you know we we go under the sand we have a lot of money so it's fine for us we just go out have fun whatever this is obviously, like the, the setup. Police...
0: this is like a setup for a joke a german and a spaniard rob a bank in brussels <laughs>
1: so so then let's 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 put the belgian police in the picture it's gonna make it even more funny of a a joke (laughs) Uh, the belgian police will actually want to have us back because we rob a bank in belgium they will want to to actually prosecute us in this country they will have to ask spain to uh, send us back to belgium and that it's often not an easy thing to do so This was obviously not an easy thing to do before the European Arrest Warrant, uh, which is a treaty within the European Union that allows member states to extradite European citizens in a very easy and smooth manner. So this treaty, once again, so to speak, uh, came into force. In 2004, and it made it much, much uh, smoother for countries to send, say, the German and the Spaniard who robbed a bank in Belgium back to Belgium. The second part of your questions was what are the options for the UK after Brexit? So, because the European Arrest Warrant is an EU law, it's only open to European Union countries, the UK will unfortunately not be able to keep it. And some uh, listeners might be wondering, you know, why can't the European Union be a bit more flexible and open this EU law uh, to the UK because it's obviously in everybody's interest. And I think that pretty much everyone would agree to that. But there is a big problem, which is that the European arrest warrant did something which many extradition treaties don't do. And that's Lifting the ban for countries to extradite their own nationals, so basically and perhaps coming back to the example that we had before, if you you and I go to Mallorca under the sand to like enjoy our money, um, Spain would possibly be happy to extradite you because you're German but be less happy to extradite me because I'm a Spaniard. and this is a thing that is very very difficult to get in different member states. Most m- member states have a ban in their constitutions for extraditing their own nationals. So if, if they had to go back and, and amend their laws and their constitutions in order to allow the UK you know, to enjoy the same level of cooperation that they had with the European arrest warrant, they would have to change their constitutions, and I'm thinking about Germany, for example, which means they would have to have a parliamentary process, and um, that would possibly not be easy, especially especially in times like we are living at the moment. Some other countries, like Slovenia, would actually need to call for a referendum. And obviously everybody, I think, can, can understand why no European Union country would actually be happy to uh, call for referendums or do um, any complicated political thing just to accommodate the UK. That is the main reason why I think the UK will not retain the European arrest Warrant, in which case, and that I'm going to answer your question, uh, it will have three different options. The first one is to do bilateral deals with the EU27, and this is what the US and Canada have done. The problem with this is that obviously it's going to take a long time and a system of bilateral deals is less effective than a pan-European treaty for obvious reasons. For example, the US uh, does not have extradition deals with Croatia. If you're uh, somebody who watches some American crime and legal drama TV shows, you would know that there is a lot of people using this uh, extradition exception to actually go and fly and have a nice holiday the same in Croatia because they cannot be extradited from there to the US. Then the second option would be to revert to a Council of Europe Convention on Extradition from 1957. This is what Switzerland does. And uh, the Council of Europe Convention is a non-European Union legal text and it is quite slow and cumbersome to use. It takes the Swiss more or less six months on average to extradite suspects as opposed to the 15 days it takes under the European arrest warrant once again on average. And then the third option would be to have a deal, an extradition deal similar to what Norway and Iceland have with the European Union. This is a treaty that is quite similar to the European arrest warrant with some tweaks, but I'm not going to go into details there. The problem with this treaty is that it has taken a long time to negotiate, 13 years actually. is still not in force and there are some parts of it which are quite difficult to work around for example we do know that when we talk about extradition you do need to have a court because obviously coming back to my example with the Belgian police if we contest the decision of the Belgian uh, judiciary to actually ask for our extradition to Belgium we need to go to a court we cannot simply ask A random body or or something like that. And that is what the Norway Iceland agreement doesn't really get quite right. They talk about having some sort of a mechanism to oversee decisions, but a mechanism needs to be some sort of a court or something similar when we are talking about decisions which affect people's fundamental rights, like being locked up or not. So that agreement is going to be a bit problematic as well. So unfortunately, I think that at the moment, as things stand, we do not have an ideal solution for the UK to be plugged into extradition agreements uh, with the European Union.
0: Yeah, it sounds like None of these three scenarios are ideal options, and I want to ask you what you think is sort of the best of the worst at the end of the podcast. But before we do that, can we just quickly talk about access to law enforcement databases? Because that's something that you talk about in your research quite a bit as well. Which databases does the UK rely on currently, and how is that going to change with Brexit? Right, there is an a long list of databases, and I should probably
1: not be boring you with all these like acronyms and names, which sound quite foreign uh, to many people. Um, I think it's important to perhaps retain two databases. So, the Schengen Information System, which is a database of stolen goods and documents, and also missing people and suspected criminals, which is, and that's the words of the British government, not mine, very useful for. Uh, law enforcement cooperation across the channel and then we've got a couple of other databases which might sound familiar for, for the informed uh, listener, which are the Prum databases, which are national databases, which contain DNA and fingerprints and all this fancy stuff also to be found in American uh, crime and legal drama TV shows. And also the Passenger Name Records, which is a database of plane passengers departing from and to the EU. So those, um, are the, those are the top three of the databases. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, at least they are the most attractive when it comes to explaining these kind of things. <laughs> then we do have some obscure things, but I'm not going to go into them because I'm also wary of timing. Um, the Schengen information system, I think, is the main priority for the UK, uh, which, by the way, the UK actually only plugged into this database a couple of years ago. So funny enough, they spent, I think it was around 30 billion pounds plugging into it. And now uh, they are going to be forced to leave. The problem with this database is that, as its own name shows, it's a Schengen database. So it's based on the idea that because we do not have uh, internal borders, we need to have some sort of cooperation to catch criminals and to make sure that um, those who are working uh, kind of uncontrolled in the European Union are the good guys and not the bad guys. Obviously, the UK is not part of Schengen, and the only reason why it was allowed to participate into the Schengen information system was because it was a European Union country and we do have a number of measures which are important so that we have to have a cooperation at this level. The problem is that there is no legal basis, and I know, once again, this is a very legalistic, lawyery thing to say, but this is the way the European institutions at the moment are thinking, there is no legal basis for a non-Schengen, non-European Union country to keep being plugged into Schengen databases. And as an example, the UK tried to join another database some years ago, which is called the Visa Information System, which stores data of visas, of Schengen visas, and it's also a Schengen database. and it could not do that because the European Court of Justice said basically you are not part of Schengen so you cannot have access to any Schengen database even if we know that basically by allowing you access uh, we'll have a better cooperation on law enforcement. So it's going to be really difficult for the UK to have a direct access to the Schengen information system. I think the best possibility that it has at the moment is to do what the US and Canada do which is an Indirect access, so basically asking a friendly Schengen or European Union country to access the database for them. It should be easier and more straightforward to access non Schengen databases. So the European Union has some agreements with other countries, like for example the US EU PNR system. I think this should be straightforward for the UK. So I think possibly the British government wants to concentrate on getting a good deal on those non-Schengen databases and trying uh, to get as much as it can with the Schengen ones.
0: So what would this good deal look like then? What is your best case scenario? We know that the UK wants a security treaty with the EU. What could that look like? What should that look like? And what are the major obstacles to getting there? Big question. Let's answer it in a minute and a half. Oh, great. Okay. So
1: I think the best case scenario would be if both parties moved a little bit from their opening negotiating positions and the UK understood that the European Union is not being legalistic but is being effective and rational in trying to protect a carefully designed system which balances obligations and rights for Schengen and non Schengen countries. And if the European Union understood that the UK might be a third country but there is no third country which has been in the European Union before. So my feeling is that it would be really great to have a security treaty which would be part of the wider Brexit deal, which would include sections on extradition, access to databases and access to or a partnership with Europol, Uh, but it would also be governed by a chapter on data protection for law enforcement purposes and also for commercial transactions and it would also have some sort of uh, reference to an international court of some sort and that could be the European Court of Justice, another mechanism a different courts, something that they have to agree uh, together. But I think those two elements, data protection and a courts of some sort, are absolutely
0: essential to get a good deal on security. Thank you so much, Camino. I think you've done a great job explaining a very complex topic very, very clearly. I, those who have in the past been confused by this part of the Brexit negotiations, and I would assume that is the majority of us, can listen to this podcast and see much clearer. They can also read your policy brief plugging in the British Justice and Home Affairs on the CER website. Thank you so much, Camino. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the CER podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore EU.